Okay, so we're going to get into it today. Mark 12 is where we're going to be, verses 28 through 34. We're going to read here uh, in just a moment. So if you want to turn in your Bibles or uh, in your device, whether you do an online Bible, it will also be on the screen. But I just want to start by reading the entire passage, and then I'll explain where we're going. So Mark 12, verse 28 through 34 says this, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and that there is none, no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So today, we begin to wind down our prayer series, I think, (laughs) I think. And the reason I say I think is twofold. First of all, uh, if the Holy Spirit directs our teaching team to continue to teach on prayer, we're going to do it, right? Because we would be unwise to not do that. But the other reason is this, that we cannot move forward with what God has put on the hearts of the leaders at Foundation Church. We cannot move forward until we have a deeply rooted rhythm of prayer for everyone who calls Foundation Church their church. We just can't. We can't do it. Our future is too bold. It's too bright. It's too big uh, for us to not be a praying church. Therefore, we must be a praying church. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this. Verse 16 says, rejoice always. Verse 17 says, pray continually. Verse 18 says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So I will say this, and I hope that you agree, that we will take seriously the call to pray continually, to rejoice always, and to give thanks in all circumstances. And so when I say that I think that it's the beginning of the end for this prayer series, what I hope happens over the next few weeks here at Foundation Church is that we continue to develop and cultivate and take seriously the call the wonderful gift of prayer and the call to be a church that prays. That's what I mean. That's why I say I think. And so with that in mind, we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at another incredibly famous and important prayer that has its roots in the Old Testament. This prayer is so important that when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment, he recites this prayer. And just like we have over the past few months, around other prayers, we're gonna take a deep dive into the meaning and importance and purpose of this prayer. So I wanna give you a little context. It talks about the beginning of that verse or that chapter in Mark or that section that we read uh, about there being a teacher of the law. Today, we we read that important interaction between Jesus and the teacher. And so I wanna highlight that when the 
the Bible calls somebody a teacher of the law, it means that they know the law by heart. Now, I don't know if you know any teachers or not. Some of them are more capable than others, okay? Now, I, I'm a trained teacher, so it's, 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 it, there's just a spectrum of people. This particular instance, these particular words, when the Bible gives you a teacher of the law, it means that they knew the law, the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, they knew it by heart. They lived it to the best of their ability, and they taught it. So this person would have been a devout Jewish person. They would have been a devout law follower, teaching people the law that was given to Moses and then passed down for generations by practice and memorization. So this person who's listening to Jesus and notices, says, hey, this Jesus knows a lot about the law that my people have been living by every day and have practiced every day for thousands of years. He decides that I should probably pay attention to what Jesus is saying. But he addresses Jesus with a question, specifically the question of, hey, all of the commandments, which one is the most important? Now, imagine being Jesus, right? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You know that this person's intentions with that question are at least partially ill-designed, right. Right? right? I mean, why else would he ask that question? Because if he's a teacher of the law, in his mind, he already knows the answer. So he's trying to trick Jesus, at least get him to be somewhat wrong in the eyes of people. That happens. I mean, it's not even necessarily that bad of a thing. If someone is an expert, they should be skeptical of other experts until they are certain that that person is actually an expert, right? I mean, I would hope that would be true for all of you experts in your fields, right? I don't want a doctor not challenging another doctor when they think that they're wrong, right? Or a, a, a lawyer or just a mechanic. I mean, it can be anything. I come to those people in expertise because I believe that they know the most. And so, yes, he's probably ill-willed a little bit, but he's also doing something that I would expect each one of us to do, right? But Jesus, being Jesus, being God in human flesh, he responds brilliantly. He responds to the teacher of, a, of the law in a way that is both correct but it also connects to his tradition. It connects to his history. It connects to something that is so important to him, which makes Jesus' response incredible. And so I just thought, I just, I just want to take a moment. I want to pause. And I want to marvel at something that is amazing about this. Jesus, God in human flesh, has known everything in the Bible before it was the Bible, right? And he lowered himself to this person's level in that moment so that this person may be encouraged. Again, Jesus, God in human flesh, lowered himself just like he did for that person to our level in moments where we needed him to, not just to encourage us, but to give us the gifts that we need, the gifts the best gifts that we could ever receive. Things like mercy and grace, sanctification, salvation, hope, joy, all because he loves us. And so even though that teacher may have been a little ill-willed and Jesus' response is brilliant, it was still born out of love, which is truly incredible. 
So here's the response, right? Let's look at the actual response that Jesus gave to the question, which is the most important commandment? Verse 29, he said, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so this response is, yes, Malcolm, thank you. (laughs) Praise God. This response is actually part of a series of laws that were given to the Israelites back in the day of Moses, the Mosaic law. And this particular section, this particular answer that Jesus gave actually comes from a section in Deuteronomy that is called the Shema. That's what we're going to be studying over the next few weeks. We're going to be studying the Shema. And so I want to take us to the part of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where Jesus draws this language from. Because again, I said it has its roots in the Old Testament, and it's important because the teacher of the law would have known this section by heart. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, it'll be on your screen, or you can read along in your Bible. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. Sound familiar? These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. So the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' parting instructions, instructions, not destructions, <laughs> instructions, to the nation of Israel before he passes away. And so if you read this book, right, if you, you will find that there are a number of commandments, a number of laws. There's over 600 laws, and part of that collection of commandments, of laws, is this Shema. But this particular section stands out because it's a prayer. It was a command that became a prayer that the Israelites would pray twice a day, every single day. Very few things in your life do you do twice a day, every single day, right? Only the really important ones. So that should suggest that this was a very important thing to the Israelites. They would pray this prayer twice daily to remind themselves how essential it is that they love God with their entire heart, that they love God with their entire soul, that they love God with all of their strength. And so in other words, love God with every thought, feeling, action, and all of your moments of being. No big deal, right? Yeah, right. No wonder they had to pray it twice a day. That is incredibly impossible. It's not just impossible. It's insanely impossible to think that you can always love God with your entire being. Love God with all you are. In this broken, sinful world, no chance, right? So why would God give Moses this set of instructions as a core part of the Old Testament law? Only for it to be reinforced when Jesus comes and says it's the greatest commandment, right? It's one thing for it to be iterated, to be recorded in the Old Testament, but for Jesus to reinforce that, and yet it 
be humanly impossible. Why would that be the case? Well, the law, and we're going to talk about this for a moment. We'll get back to it. The law functioned differently before and after Jesus. See, before Jesus, the Levitical law or the law of Moses was given to the Israelites as a guide in their life that they would follow if they wanted to thrive, right? So if, and I truly mean if, a person was able to keep every law and commandment perfectly, they would have been living their best life possible. But, and I do mean but, no one was able to do that. No one was able to do that until Jesus, right? Jesus lived a perfect life so that we didn't have to, so that we don't have to. Instead, our perfection is found in knowing Jesus, following Jesus, having him be part of our life. So once Jesus came and he fulfilled the law, that's language that Jesus used through his death and resurrection, the law became a beacon, a reminder of how good Jesus is. And so for that reason, the implications of this prayer the Shema, are different for us as Christians than it was for the Israelites in their day. And yet, it's still vitally important. So here's a good question. If you were asking me a question, I would suggest you ask this. Okay, if Jesus fulfilled the law and we were saved not by the law, but by mercy and grace that was extended to us in Jesus, why does the Shema matter? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. The short answer is this, okay? So you were saved by grace through faith. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter two. And so the commandment to love God with all of you are is at the foundation of the full life that Jesus promised you. Your salvation is not contingent on you loving God with your whole being. But I would suggest that pursuing that end is the way that you thrive. Jesus shows us two, path, two pathways in John 10.10. 10. Anybody remember that verse yet? I'm going to keep reading it to you. I don't even have to work hard to find ways to put this verse in every sermon. I've said it in every sermon, and it's because it's true. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The two, pathway, the two pathways that we have are a life in Jesus where we thrive or a life full of the enemy's destruction. The command to love God with everything you are is the foundation of a life where you thrive. So here's how I might practically pray this prayer as a Christian today who's been saved by grace, by none of my own works, right? Because again, we're not talking about the same application. We're talking about a life where grace by faith alone save me, so how might I think about this prayer? I think about it this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and when you fail, God's grace is sufficient. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, and when you fail, God's grace is sufficient. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, and when you fail, God's grace is sufficient. So I want to be clear about this from the beginning of our study of this prayer. No one will love God perfectly. That's okay, because Jesus did, and he did so 
on our behalf. And he covered our failings. So this is not a prayer anymore from us about perfection. It's not even a sermon series or a prayer series demanding perfection. Rather, this is what I would suggest. This prayer can guide you, the believer, to build your life in a way that allows you, both you and I, to have that full life that Jesus talks about in John 10, 10. Right? We're not, we're not going to get it right. Every day we're going to fail. But if we try, if we try to love God with all of our being, you're going to get closer to that. And so with that in mind, I want to study this prayer. I want to study the, significant of, the significance of the words in this prayer because there's a reason why Jesus recited it. When he said that this is the greatest commandment, he said that because there's a reason. And he said that because he wants us to understand something. And so we're going to start with the very beginning of the prayer, with the line, hear, O Israel. Right? That's how the prayer opens. That's how the verses, the commands in Deuteronomy open. And we're going to look at the word specifically hear, right? To hear something. That is actually the Hebrew word shema. That's why the prayer is titled shema. It means listen. So the very first word in this prayer is important to understand because it means to listen. It means to hear or listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But our English version of the word listen does not do it justice. It falls short, as many of the English words do, in matching the significance of both the Hebrew and the Greek words that the Bible has been written in. And so if you think about it, I want to just break down, or if we can together for a few moments, we're going to look at the word listen and why it's such an important part of this prayer. Because right when you read the prayer, hear, O Israel, you're like, okay, and you kind of go right past that and you go to uh, love the Lord your God, right, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. But this word, to listen, is actually very important, and it was very important to the Israelites, which is why it's the title of the prayer, Shema. So in our, in our language, listen can be applied a few different ways, right? You have like a music genre, easy listening. Anybody love some easy listening? Okay. How about a passive action? I was listening to music as I worked out. Or an intentional action. I was listening intently to hear a reasonable answer to that really terrible question. Or a command for attention. Listen here. There's other ones. You get the point. There's other ways that this has been applied. But in Scripture, we see Shema actually used in some very specific and important ways. And so I want to read some of those to you. First of all, Proverbs 20, verse 12 says this, Ears that hear, Shema, and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. What's interesting about this passage is that it seems redundant because what else do ears do besides hear, right? So when it says, ears that hear, you're like, yeah, duh. But what's actually happening here is that the word Shema is used to denote the command to pay attention to. So it's saying, ears that pay attention, ears that listen, ears that hear. 
There's an, an example of this usage in Genesis 29. The context of this verse is that there's a lady named Leah, and she's married to a man named Jacob, who also has another wife named Rachel, and he loves Rachel more than Leah. And so this obviously makes her very sad. And she believes that if she gives Jacob a son, which is really important in that culture, that he will love her more. And so she ends up having a few sons with Jacob, and then we see this verse pop up in Genesis 29, verse 33. It said, she conceived again, and when she had given birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard, or the Lord Shema, that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. The name Simeon is actually believed to be translated into the one who hears, the one who hears. And so this makes sense when you hear that name and you hear this reaction that Leah would name her son that because she knew that God was paying attention probably to so many prayers that she was praying about her husband loving her and paying attention to her. So she says, God was paying attention to me. God was listening to me. God, Shema, my prayers. So Shema means to listen, but it's not even a passive listening. It means to pay attention. There's still more to the word, though. In fact, in Exodus 19, we see this. It says, now if you obey, or Shema, now if you Shema me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. And so it's actually in this verse that we start to see sort of the fullness of this word kind of spring up out of its meaning right? The depth of what Shema means in the Hebrew language. Shema is synonymous with obedience and specifically obedience to God's law. So in other words, if you listen and then apply and then remain obedient to what God says, then you will fully Shema, the word of God. So the Shema, this prayer that they prayed, to hear, O Israel, which is the title of the prayer, can be heard more like this in our modern language. Listen, O Israel, and pay attention to and be obedient to the command that you are about to hear. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In ancient Hebrew culture, listening and obeying went hand in hand, right? Which is why it's so different for us because we can listen to something and totally walk away from it as if it means nothing. But for them, it was synonymous. It meant if you were going to Shema something, not only were you going to hear it and apply it, but you were going to be obedient to it. Jeremiah 5.21 says this, hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see and ears but do not hear. This would have been the foolish behavior that the Israelites were trying to avoid as they prayed the Shema. And this sentiment is not limited to the Old Testament. It's also the underlying theme in the book of James, right? If you've read the book of James, you know there's a lot of hear and do, right? Listen and be. And keep in mind that James was actually a pastor. He was an elder in the early church in Jerusalem, which means that he would have been surrounded by... Jews, right? Some who were converted, others who were considering it. And so when he preaches, when he writes this letter about the gospel, it makes sense why he says it this way. James 1, 
Verse 22 through 25 says this. You've probably heard this many times. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So when I read this passage, it goes straight to my heart because I'm so guilty of this thing sometimes, right? Like, can you relate to that? Of letting God's word like into my ears and even a little bit into my head, but just totally ignoring the application in my life. So I imagine these first century you know, Jews that are sitting there reading this letter, hearing this sermon preached to them, they're like, they're listening, they're kind of wondering, okay, what's, what's this Christianity thing? What are we doing with this? And then they hear this, and they hear these words that have been prayed in their life and in their people's lives for thousands of years. They hear the words that they've been praying as the Shema, and it was a in the application is in this letter that they are now hearing for the first time. They must have had their minds blown, right? For to hear, first of all, to hear Jesus as the teacher of the law did. And now we fast forward to the church in Jerusalem and James is saying, hey, don't just hear the word, but do it. They're like, yeah, that's what we've been saying for thousands of years. We've been trying to get this through. They're hearing a familiar sentiment that's no longer around the law of Moses, but as it says, it's the law that Jesus gave them, the law that gives perfect freedom. And so that brings us back all the way to the story we read at the beginning of this sermon today, where we started with Jesus and his interaction with the teacher of the law. If you remember, Jesus is spending his time teaching in the temple courts. He did that a lot during his ministry. And that would have been the place where devout, long-practicing, generationally trained Jews would come to worship and learn. And the people with the most status were the people who looked like they were living the law of Moses with the most accuracy. So in that moment that we read about earlier, Jesus uses a wonderful teaching tool. It's actually genius. This new wise teacher named Jesus who is gaining a ton of attention. He has this youthful wisdom and this deep compassion. And he answers the question, which is the greatest commandment with the Shema? With the Shema. And I would imagine in that moment that every devout Jew, every person listening who had that background, including the teachers of the law, had to be thinking, yes, this guy's on our team. He's validating me. He gets it. He's one of the good guys. Until the very next line. Because in verse 31, he says this, and the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself? Why? Why would that be what you want from me? I've been bringing the sacrifices, the burnt offerings. I've been praying prayers in public. I look holy. I am nailing religion. 
and you want me to love my neighbor as myself? But look how well I love myself, Jesus. I give myself clothes that I look good in, right? I buy myself my favorite food and I make it just how I want it. I take myself to my favorite vacation spots. I even let myself have a rest day when I have a million things to do. And you want me to love my neighbor like that? My neighbor who doesn't take care of their lawn, whose teenage son drives too fast down the street, the neighbor whose dog poops on my lawn and he doesn't pick it up? You want me to love them as well as I love myself? Why? Why? And this isn't Jesus' answer, but this would be the answer that I think Jesus would give because it's written in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. The reason why Jesus wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, as an application of the law of freedom, is because people are God's masterpiece. People are God's masterpiece. His Best creation above all of the things, the things that you set your eyes on and you cannot believe how beautiful they are, they pale in comparison to you and to your neighbor who's a jerk. And maybe your neighbor's not a jerk. Maybe your neighbor's awesome, but it doesn't matter because you've been called to love them as you love yourself. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus didn't come so that we could uplift the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law so that we could uplift people. Jesus set the tone with the response to the teacher of the law. If we shema, if we listen, apply, and are obedient to the command to love God with our whole being, our whole being, our whole person, then how we live that out is loving those people around us. And that's according to Jesus. The foundation of everything that is good in your life is the love for God and his good design for your life. And he said the way you live that out here on earth is to love other people as you love yourself. What's wild is Satan is incredibly good at trying to convince you otherwise. He's very tricky and his tactics are dirty, allowing yourself to believe anything contrary to God's good design for your life is like building your house on sand. Eventually it will come tumbling down. As many of you know, the name of Foundation Church was inspired by the verse that Jessica quoted earlier in Matthew 7. It says, therefore, anyone who hears hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and they beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. So here's what I would love for us to pray together. In fact, will you stand with me? Because we're just going to pray in a moment. Jesus, time and time again, if you pay attention to his teachings in the gospel, he talks about listening or hearing. And what he's saying is he wants us to go back to the same application that was in Deuteronomy when the law was given 
that not only do we hear with our ears and passively walk away, but as it says in James, that we would do it, that we would internalize it and apply it. And so when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, when he recites that prayer as the greatest commandment and partners it with how we love others, he wants us to understand that the way we live that out, the way that we do our pursuit of loving God with our whole being is evident in how we love other people. And so for that reason, I want us to pray that the Lord would help us to listen, apply, and obey his teachings so that we may be able to love people as we are commanded to. And that's not going to be easy, and you're not going to get it right every time, but it is what we are to do. It's what we are to be. It's who God has called us and wired us to be. So for that reason, I want to pray. I want us to pray together. I want us to pray for those people that are really easy to love and the people who are really hard to love and everyone in between there, that God would give us everything we need, that as we pursue him, that we would be able to pursue them as well. So God, as you've given us this word today, as you've showed us in your scripture through Jesus's teachings that you have called us to love God with our whole being. And as you've reminded us that that's not something that we can actually accomplish on our own, but you have given us through your son, through Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the capacity to pursue that. And that your good design for our life is how we thrive as we pursue that, as we chase after that. And at the core of that is how we love other people. So allow us to do that well. Give us the tools and the patience and the courage to do that well. To put aside things that are maybe less important, even if they are important, less important than the, the primary command to love God and love people. Help us to do that well as individuals and collectively as a church. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.